You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Heidi ho, Will. Heidi ho, David. And Heidi ho, everybody. Welcome to Common Descent Podcast, episode 91. This episode, we are discussing frogs. Frogs! We have done lots of episodes about lots of different taxa, groups of living organisms, and we have not once done an amphibian-dedicated episode so far. Much to the chagrin of numerous listeners. So many so many people. <laughs> <laughs> this is it, folks. We're doing it. In this episode, we are going to discuss what frogs are, uh, the features frogs share, their modern diversity and impact, and then we will take a trip and to discuss not just frog origins, but we'll d- expand a little and discuss amphibian evolution a bit. Since these are intro amphibians. And we'll take a trip through the frog fossil record a bit to hit some of the highlights. This topic, frogs specifically, was requested by two listeners, Jake and Cody, and the broader subject of amphibians and amphibian evolution has been requested by patrons Thomas, Mark, and Francis, plus Brian and Jay, and somebody who was on, I think this is one of our Q&As. Oh, right, right, right. Who went by the very fitting moniker, Toad. <laughs> Before we get into the episode proper, a few announcements. Number one, we have a Patreon. We do. We have a lot of people supporting us on Patreon. We are super grateful for all those folks. In return, we give them goodies. We just recently released an episode of Bonus News. We do director's notes for each episode. Lots of cool stuff. And for patrons of a certain level, we'll shout your name out on the podcast when you join us. This time around, we welcome Christopher, Gregory, and Andrew. And we've gotten a bunch of other patrons of lower levels. And of course, you are all appreciated. But thank you and welcome aboard. A couple other quick announcements. Uh, we are There's still a pandemic going on. We are still mostly at home. We hope everybody out there is safe and healthy mm-hmm. and doing the best that you can. In related news, there are a couple of big events that happen at the end of the year that we often go to. Yes. One of them is DragonCon. The last two years, we have attended DragonCon as official guest scientist as the podcast. This year, we will not be going to DragonCon. This year's DragonCon will not be being held physically in Atlanta. Yes, they have officially announced that this Dragon Con is postponed until 2021. Yep. We are skipping a year, but they are uh, there's talk of them doing some virtual events. And one way or another, we still hope to do some sort of cool Dragon Con related things at the end of August, early September. So we are sad that we will not be attending Dragon Con this year. We are happy that Dragon Con is not happening this yeah, year. <laughs> it's it's the smart it's the smart thing to do. That is the right decision, even though it is a shame. But we will update you as we are updated about the plans coming up. Indeed. Also, uh, uh, many years we like to go to the annual meeting of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology. Remember episode seventeen? That is also not happening as normal this year. For similar reasons. SVP is moving online, so it will be a virtual meeting. Not sure yet what that's going to look like, but you can bet we're going to be keeping an eye out, Mm -hmm. and we will let you all know what the plan is. 
Hey, Will, another thing that's going to happen this year, in November, if I remember my calculations correctly, we're going to hit triple digits. Yeah, we are. Episode 100 of this podcast will happen before the end of the year. Hey, listeners, if you have an idea for some cool thing we can do for episode 100, let us know. We'd love to do something wacky. Uh, We've gotten a couple of neat requests already, so keep them coming. The more requests, the more cool ideas we have, the better. Agreed. Also, a smaller note, episode 95's coming up. That's an Extinction episode. If you have Extinction topics, send them in. We'll see what we can come up with. And that's enough announcements for this particular episode, which means it is time to move on to the news. Every episode, we like to start out with a news section where we find news in the world of paleontology and evolution and whatnot. You stay up to date, we stay up to date, and it's generally something fun that our listeners like. Will, what news do you bring from the world? Colorful bugs. Okay. So this first bit of news is about some insects found in some Myanmar amber, which we've discussed before. Yes. Amber being that resiny substance that is petrified, you know, resiny substance from plants. And Myanmar amber being some of the amber that's coming out in all the newses. (laughs) Right. This is Burmese amber. It is. Lots of cool stuff coming out of it. Also, as we discussed a few episodes ago, lots of controversy these days because of the way that it is uh, found and acquired and then dispersed from there. So it is it is controversial, though scientifically valuable. Yes, indeed. This amber or these pieces of amber preserved insects, a few of which gave indication of their color while alive, which gave some potentially interesting insights to their behavior. So this is research by Chinyoung Tsai et al. in Proceedings of Royal Society B. And the article is by Adam Smith in The Independent. So this amber dates back to not quite 100, but 99 million years old, just like all Burmese amber. And there are 35 pieces preserved that are part of the study overall, which include a variety of insects... Uh, things like cuckoo wasps, soldier flies, and some beetles. And some of them preserved color, like visible through the amber, you could see their color. So these are Cretaceous-aged, colorful bugs. Exactly. The wasps in particular are the ones they focused on. Had a metallic bluish, yellowish green, purplish blue, or green colors. Wow. So like vibrant and that metallic so it had like a sheen to it which are the same kind of colors of today's cuckoo wasps so similar coloration with the living wasps which could give insights to their behavior today's cuckoo wasps have very unique behaviors as their name may suggest for those of you familiar with the cuckoo bird these wasps lay their eggs in the nests of other bees and wasps. Yeah, other bees and wasps will make like these oftentimes extravagant nests full of food and stuff, and cuckoo wasps go in and lay their own eggs, and at least some of them, I know their larvae, have evolved to hatch first and then eat the larvae of the host insect. (laughs) Yeah, cuckoos. (laughs) Yep. So if we can take the very similar colorations to mean similar insects... They could have very well been using a similar technique for caring for their young, quote unquote, (laughs) having someone else care for their young. (laughs) I guess diverse coloration may be linked to diverse lifestyles. And they point out that this could be a form of camouflage. 
Right. Uh, so it may have been a way for them to better sneak in and sneak out. Uh, that those colors may have been like optical uh, camouflage and and put off their soon to be nannies. Right. Well, nothing looks like the, 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 no bugs are metallic purple. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're going to be looking for army guys. But there are other reasons that they could have those weird colors. And thermoregulation was one of the ones they suggested that having the right colors can change your absorption or dissipation of sunlight. So it could be for maintaining the right temperatures inside their body. Uh, But interesting colors. The next question was, why were these insects in amber maintaining their colors? Yeah. How is that preserving? Yes, because typically... In your common insect, your common everyday insect, the structures that create color within the the cuticle layer of their exoskeleton degrade when they're preserved and they turn a dark color. Okay. You know, so the insect ends up looking, you know, either brownish or blackish when they weren't that color in life. Right. They dull. They dull. And so why were these wasps maintaining such vibrant colors in amber? And are these colors the living colors? Right. Is this actually... We, You and I were talking the other day about uh, green snakes mm-hmm, will mm-hmm. turn blue when they die because, in short, their skin gets its color from two sources, one of which ceases when the cells die. Yeah. One dies with the cells. The other is part of the body. Yeah. And so... They, they're, they're blue in structure, yellow in pigment, and together that makes green, but the pigments go away when the cells die, and so you're left with blue. So that's kind of what they're wanting to look at here. So they took some of the samples, cut into them until they could get to the actual exoskeleton of the wasp, and then put that under an electron microscope. And what they found were nanostructures, structural pigment. Uh, So structural pigment, like we talked about in the feathers last news, this is structural coloration in the exoskeleton of these wasps, which is why it didn't degrade. You know, we weren't dealing with pigments that also died along with the body. Right. Typically, Re- pigments are a molecule mm-hmm. produced by the cells, whereas structure can be the structure of the stuff the exoskeleton is made of, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily fall apart when the animal dies. Yeah, you're not going to get a rotting process <laughs> of degradation it, as long as the exoskeleton is intact. And it suggests that this is what the wasps look like in life, that we're getting a true-to-life view of what color they were and what color they would have appeared 99 million years ago. Very neat. That is, what that makes me wonder why we don't have more. Good, yeah, good point. Uh, I would expect there to be more bugs in amber that have that kind of coloration, and maybe it's that it hasn't been recognized, or maybe there is something special about the preservation of these particular bugs. Or maybe there are ones that have been noticed and we've yet to cut and do the same microscopy with. True. So it may be that other people go, hey, wait, I I know some shiny insects in amber that have been sitting in collections. Right. Uh, so all right, all right. I, I'd be happy to see some more news articles, scientists out there. <laughs> Dear paleo artists, <laughs> have fun. Well, my first bit of news, I thought fitting for this episode, is about amphibians. Okay. Not frogs. Frogs are the the stars of the episode, but this first bit of news is about salamanders. Some honorable mentions. Honorable mention salamanders. (laughs) And uh, news that revolves around the question, how does metamorphosis affect the evolution of salamanders? Good question. 
This is research by Anne Claire Fabry et al. in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, and we'll link to a press release from the Natural History Museum in London on phys.org. We discussed metamorphosis at length in episode 81. We did. The this you start out in, as one type of animal and then you change dramatically into a different type of adult. Salamanders uh, often have what we call complete metamorphosis that yes. they have a larva and then they become an adult later. But there are a handful of different alterations. There are some that have direct development, which means that they basically don't metamorphose. Yeah, they, that you're born as kind of a little version of the adult. And then some are neotenic or pedomorphic, where the larva basically keeps the larval body shape, mm -hmm. even as they become adults. This study was hoping to basically find a link. So if we look at the morphology of salamanders and compare it to their ecology, their relationships, and their life cycle, are there are there links? How does metamorphosis relate to your patterns of evolution? Yeah. Because it's been suggested by some that metamorphosis might lead to lots of variation. But on the other hand, if you have a structure that has to be useful as a aquatic tiny larva and also as a terrestrial adult eating something different, you might actually be constrained in your evolution. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's, it's a complicated thing because you're dealing with two distinct lifestyles and two distinct almost animals. Yeah. So you're having two individuals' evolutions tied up into one organism. Yeah. And that's where all the questions come up. Does that hinder or free up your evolutionary availability? They specifically looked at the structure of skulls. So they did micro-CT scans of skulls. They selected 148 species of salamanders. Nice. Across all the, all the diversity of ecology and relationships. And they characterized the shape of the skulls with a technique we've discussed before, geometric morphometrics. Yay! Which is a technique that relies on landmarks. Basically, here are landmarks that identify features and points on the skull that we can compare from skull to skull. Yeah, the, the, these features are found on... All salamanders, even if they get real weird. They uh, they used a combination of static landmarks and then what are called sliding landmarks, which are uh, more useful, I think, for determining shape changes than feature changes, like mm -hmm. movement of things. In total, 929 landmarks <sighs> on the skulls of salamanders. Wow! Yeah, that's a lot of landmarks. <laughs> wow. And they compared it to what we know about salamander evolution and diversity. And they, their results supported a number of things. First, that the ancestors of salamanders are likely metamorphic, so they've been metamorphosing the whole time, but that life cycle shifts, so a change from complete metamorphosis to direct development or to larval neotenic strategies, those big shifts have happened at least 11 times in the diversity of salamanders, and that where those shifts happen we see a lot of diversification and rapid evolution in the skull morphology of salamanders, suggesting, the authors propose, that shifting life cycles drive diversity. Okay. You get a new life cycle, and now you radiate out from there. They also note noted that species that metamorphose show a lot of evolutionary modularity in the skull which means that different parts of the skull are evolving at different rates with different patterns. 
that your jaws aren't following the same trajectory as your eyes or the back of your skull or whatever. Yeah, that your skull's not necessarily all evolving as a single unit, but more as compartments, each part of your skull under its own pressures. Yep, it's modular. This seems to be related to a lot of disparity. So among the metamorphosing species, we see a lot of diversity and differentiation in their skull pieces, in what the skulls look like, especially in the bones related to feeding. Yeah. This, they suggest, is probably pretty handy for the kinds of rapid changes you need during metamorphosis, so that if you have modular bits in your skull and they're a little bit flexible, it helps with the transition, especially since larvae and adults often eat different things. Yeah. They often have different feeding strategies. So they found that contrary to some suggestions that metamorphosis might be restrictive, we actually see the most evolutionary diversity and rapid evolution and variation in features in the species that metamorphose. And that when you have life cycle changes, that leads to these expansions of evolutionary experimentation in these groups. They also pointed out that this might help explain or might be part of the reason why metamorphosis is so dang common. Yes, why we see so much of it. So much. They mentioned in the study that metamorphosis is seen in about 80% of insects and about 50% of vertebrates. Which seems real weird until you remember fish. Yes. That, that <laughs> like, amphibians yeah. and fish are part of vertebrates. Half of vertebrates metamorphose. And almost all insects metamorphose. Which means there's a lot of diversity. There's a lot of species that do it. And they're pointing out that if metamorphosis correlates with evolutionary diversity, that might be why we see it so commonly around the world. Absolutely. It gives you a chance to react and adapt to changing in new situations quicker than others who just have normal babies. Nor, nor normal single phase life cycles. I like this also because metamorphosis is such a sci-fi concept seemingly to us to yeah. begin with. <laughs> you are born one thing and then literally become a new thing as you grow up. But it also makes sense that if there's a period in your life where you reshape your body, that there's lots of maneuverability within that for new body forms and for that reshaping to reshape in different ways or to reshape at different rates like you have this new this phase in life that tweaking it slightly can have huge effects yeah and so it, it makes sense to me how you could have so much diversity so easily when your lifestyle already has you making huge changes Within one one uh, uh, individual's lifespan. Right, right. And, and it seems like, whereas one idea people have proposed is, all right, well, if your mouth needs to, is under selective pressure from two different life si lifestyles, that's very constraining. Well, that having those two forms almost doubles your selective pressure, which could right. narrow you in. But this seems to be suggesting that, to the on the contrary, you are reacting within one group of organisms to m multiple types of selective pressure on the same features, which is driving diverse forms of those features, which is pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Well, my next bit of news also takes a close look at a skull of an interesting group, 
It is about Thylacosmilus, the marsupial saber-toothed cat. Not really, though, according to this research. (laughs) (laughs) Go on. So this is research by Christine Janis in Pier J, and the uh, press release is in Sci News. So Thylacosmilus atrox, uh, I believe we've mentioned... I'm pretty sure it came up. We, we must have mentioned. It, it had to have come up in South America. But this is... Episode 74. Yes. This is the apex predator famous down in South America, marsupial saber-tooth. Uh, dra- jaguar size, so, you know, big cat. And was found in South America between 9 and 3 million years ago. So, Neogene. For a long time, it has been a, like, given classic example of conversion evolution with the saber-toothed cats found here in North America and, and elsewhere that also sported big saber canines, big, big, you know, elongated teeth. Yeah, looks like a saber-tooth. Walks, question mark? But it, at a glance, it looks like, you know, a marsupial, so a little weird, but it looks like a saber-toothed cat, effectively. And so people have often applied saber-tooth characteristics to it, that it was very likely filling a similar niche, a similar apex saber-tooth predator role down there in South America. This research points out that if you just look at the face at a glance, yes, they do look very similar. But if you start to take the whole animal and the rest of the features of the skull, other than those teeth, they start to look markedly different. So that's what this research did. So some of the differences they note, not part of their research, but from previous studies, and if you just kind of take a step back, is there are a lot of weird differences in Thylacosmilus. First off, it doesn't have incisors. Yep. <laughs> it does not have teeth between those canines, <laughs> which if you've ever seen a Smilodon or other saber-toothed cat skull, they have incisors, and their incisors are prominent compared to other cats yeah they have what we call cananiform incisors because you have to get around those giant (laughs) canines yep so they're they lack incisors which is weird in and of itself it's a weird thing to do their lower jaw is not fused together like you see in big cats Uh, so like along the middle the midline they they didn't specify if it was just there or if there were any other spots uh but that so like our jaw and most mammal jaws, there are, or in some mammals, visibly individual bones, but they have fused into one piece. Evidently, Thylacosmilus is lacking some of that fusion, and other research has shown does not have a particularly strong bite. Hmm. Much weaker, at least, compared to other, you know, saber-tooths, the true saber-tooth cats. They also are fairly short-legged and stiff-backed compared to a true cat. So they would not have been great at pursuit, pouncing, or grappling with prey the way we picture big cats and presume saber-toothed cats dealt with their prey. Okay. So it couldn't have been hunting like them, at least not physically the same way. And the sabers are not sabers, they're triangular. Oh. Which I didn't know until looking into this. So saber-toothed cats have these... Oftentimes very narrow. Compressed. Yeah, they're like knives. They are like a sword, like a saber, with an edge on the front and an edge on the back. Not so in Thylacosmilus. They are triangular with the flats pointing backward. So they are wedges, not sabers. Hmm. Spikes. So 
they they brought these up just to point out that like they were weird and different before this research. <laughs> like they look similar at a glance, but when you actually step back and take a look at the whole animal, they are not a saber-toothed cat. You know, they are their own thing. So they did some research to figure out what might have they what might they have been doing. Their research compared aspects of the skull with those of present-day big cats and uh, various saber-toothed cats. And they, though the skulls look similar under further analysis, found a number of differences. The first is that the canines seem to be weaker in Thylacosmilus at stabbing compared to, say, Smilodon, the big famous saber-toothed cat, but are stronger in a pullback motion. Oh, okay. So they're not as good at shoving those teeth into a prey animal, but once they've gotten their teeth into something, they can pull back on it better than a saber-toothed cat, which they suggest could have been used to wrench open carcasses. Yeah. And open up already dead animals. It's an excavator. It's a a can opener. Yeah. (laughs) Their molars were also weird. They are smaller and don't wear into sharp edges like... Today's big cats and Smilodons uh, and, and saber-toothed cats, instead they wear flat, very much like you would think of a typical molar. And when they studied the microware, they found that it indicated they were very likely eating soft foods. Okay. Most similar to today's big cats, like cheetahs, who only eat very fresh kills. So they're not having to go through tough, aged stuff. Yeah, and they avoid bone and things. They mm-hmm. want the softest parts of the meal. But... Thylacosmilus' teeth indicate that they were eating a diet even softer than that fed to big cats in human care. Huh. So even softer, which suggests potentially organs, that they were specialists in organs, which would again maybe be a scavenging behavior. Huh. So they're using their excavator teeth to pull open a carcass and then eat organs. Yes, because they emphasize that even though the molars are worn flat, similar to bone crushers, the microware does not support bone crushing. Interesting. So they don't fully know what it was doing with these weird features, but they suggest that it may have been a specialist scavenger great at opening up carcasses to get to the softest bits instead of an equivalent apex predator to saber-toothed cats uh, elsewhere. I. It's fascinating that saber teeth are so common and widespread and diverse among mammals that we were able to look at an uh, that this marsupial and go, oh, it was probably doing the same thing as the, oh, it's a very, very general thing that we see. And forgetting that that's a super weird feature to evolve. Yes. And it could very well have been for something utterly weird. That these are more tusks than fangs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's got predator tusks. And they, they are, like, one of the weird things about Thylacosmilus is Fangs are, they are ever growing. They're open rooted. They go up into the roof of the skull. Yeah, the the roots of those teeth go way, like up over the eyes. And so they are ever growing sabers. Not like our our Smilodon, who if they break a saber, that's it. Mm -hmm. This one, they've got a continuous supply. Yeah, they're like rodent incisors. So Uh, see episode 88 on teeth. The point the researchers were making is, when you actually pay attention to all those weird aspects, like you were just saying that it's a weird feature to begin with, 
you can notice pretty easily that, no, that's not a saber-toothed cat. What it was doing, they're not positive. You can't say for sure. Right, right. Uh, they did make one suggestion I, I would be remiss not to add in, that if it was a specialized scavenger without those incisors, it may have been using a powerful tongue, which is often a trait associated with animals that get rid of their front teeth. Oh. Because things like walrus... I was about to say... And anteaters <laughs> are have reduced their dentition and use a powerful tongue to get their food. I was about to say, because listen, you said it's got tusks. Yep. It's got no teeth in the front and walruses like suck clams yep. and stuff up. Now the image in my head is Thylacosmilus pulling open a carcass and then slurping intestines Just. up. <laughs> Which... Would be disgusting and fantastic. It's it's one of those where like that would be the most popular feeding display, <laughs> you know, feed, feeding exhibition at the zoo. Oh, every, every documentary, time. every documentary would have Thylacosmilus in it. <laughs> oh, once again, paleo artists have fun. You're welcome. For the last bit of news, I thought I'd talk about amphibians. Uh, okay. Now the episode's about frogs. The first bit of news was about salamanders, but as some of our listeners may know, there is a third group of living amphibians, the the rare and mysterious Sicilians. Yes. Sicilians are amphibians. They, they, they're long, limbless. They like snakes, like legless lizards. They have adopted that same sort of serpentine body shape. They have these ridges down their bodies. They are usually fossorial. They live underground. Mm -hmm. So they're just not known very well. Yeah, they're, they're not extremely diverse. Good uh, at hiding. Good at hiding. They're typically rather small. This new bit of research is a study on living Sicilians exhibiting a trait that was not known from Sicilians before, possibly venom. Yeah. This is research by Pedro Luis Malho Fontana et al. in iScience. And we'll link to a press release from Sci News in our blog post. Sicilians are jaw feeders, pretty much across the board. And that sounds weird, but a lot of yeah, animals eat in weird ways. They have powerful bites. They have rows of pointy, curved teeth. Two on the top, one on the bottom. Two rows up top, one on the bottom, like tuataras. Yeah. And like amphibians, it is a general trait of living amphibians that they are slimy. <laughs> yep. They secrete things through their skin. Amphibians have the general habit of producing mucus, and they often produce, or at the very least, gather toxins. Yeah, the vast majority of amphibians have at least some amount of toxin in their skin. Yep, they are poisonous. They yeah. have skin glands that contain secretions, some of which are toxic, which makes them poisonous. As a reminder, when we refer to poisonous animals, it means that they that their toxins are passive in their defense. If you eat them, you get sick. Yeah, you bite them, you're in trouble. Venomous if means... They bite you. <laughs> <laughs> you have toxins that you are oftentimes injecting. Yeah, administering. Either with a bite or a stinger or something like that. Sicilians produce mucus from their head, which is uh, a, thought to be a lubricant for burrowing. Cool. And poisons from their tails. But they are not known to be venomous. In fact, venom is pretty much unheard of in amphibians. In this study, the authors looked at ringed Sicilians, Siphonops annulatus from Brazil, and took a close look at glands associated with the teeth. These are not new. Uh, researchers have known about these for decades, 
but in the past they were assumed to be similar to the skin glands. But here, they did a couple of investigations. One was a chemical analysis. What's inside these glands? They sit right or right at near the base of the teeth. Their analysis was preliminary, but they did find lots of a particular enzyme called phospholipase A2, which we see quite often in venoms of bees and of snakes. They also looked at the embryologic development and found that while the skin glands originate with the epidermis, these oral glands develop from dental tissue, which is what we also see in reptile venom glands. So, it is not for sure that these are venom, but they have some venom ingredients. They're built the same way that we see venom glands in reptiles. They're right next to the teeth. And the authors suggest that secretion release seems to depend on compressing of the glands. Uh, okay. Which the Sicilians may be doing basically by biting. Yeah. So Sicilians have this habit of biting and holding. And they, they commented in the paper that they'll also push their prey into the ground. Oh, right, right. So they're usually eating worms and insects, maybe small vertebrates. But yeah, they'll bite and sort of push down. And they're wondering if these are habits that squeeze these glands to release toxins. Yeah. They don't have, like, needle teeth like snakes do. This sounds more like how I've heard it described for things like helidermatids, gila mm. monsters. That it's, you bite and the venom oozes out into the holes that your teeth are producing. Yes, you create wounds for the venom to get in through. So, Sicilians at least one Sicilian, may be venomous. Which, if any of you have ever seen a close-up picture of Sicilian teeth, which if you click the link, you'll be able to get a gl yep. glimpse of them. Uh, that's a horrifying concept because they have shark mouths. Yeah, they, I, this <laughs> makes them the shrews of the amphibian world. Yes, it does. <laughs> Scary little creatures. They're, they are they really are the real-life like tremors in the fact that they are subterranean predators with just mouths Full of spikes. Yeah. And it's awesome. And now they might be venomous. Now so. also maybe venom. That's really cool. And I like it. I like it as a reminder that venom is one of those things that can take many different forms in who's doing it and like where it's producing from and like what its origins are. Oh, yeah. You got venom in the tail, venom in the mouth. And platypuses have venom in their feet. On the heels. On the heels. <laughs> so it's. Though it's weird to think of a ven venomous amphibian, it's not that crazy when you really kind of like with thiacosmite, when you actually step back and look at the variety of venoms, it's like, all right, well, I mean, it almost would have been weird if there wasn't one of you. <laughs> well, and there's no, like venom and poison differ in their administering. Mm -hmm. So for amphibians are covered in poison. It's a little weird to me that more of them haven't moved that poison into to glands for for. Taking on, taking down prey or for defending biting. themselves. Yeah, for biting or, or poking. So maybe we'll find more. Which would be pretty awesome. Well, we've talked about salamanders. We've talked about Sicilians. But this episode isn't about them. They aren't in the title. After the break, we will discuss the main topic of the episode. Frogs. Yay! Frogs are amphibians. Agreed. 
They are not the only amphibians. Uh, if you if you skip the news, then you missed us talking about salamanders and Sicilians. But just a, a quick recap. Salamanders and Sicilians, also amphibians. Salamanders are sort of lizard-like, lizard-shaped newts, sirens, things like that. Sprawling limbs, long tails, wiggly bodies. Sicilians are long and snaky. Frogs are frogs. More on them in a minute. Amphibians generally share characteristics, including but not limited to being ectothermic. Yeah. Quote, cold-blooded. Having semi-permeable skin. Yeah, thin. Very thin skin, which they use for breathing. Yes. They respire through their skin. Often amphibians are tied to water because typically, like, almost as a gen- as a rule, amphibians are tied to water because their skin tends to need to be moist in order to function for that respiration. And their eggs lack a shell to survive out of water. Yep, so they lay their eggs in water. Amphibians tend to live, like, the classic places we think of are ponds and streams and things like that. Amphibians also have a general habit of metamorphosing. They start out as larvae, as little... They have what's, what's called a biphasic lifestyle. Two phases. You are basically two animals. Your little an, your little your baby form is totally different from your adult form. Frogs, or scientifically anura, are ridiculously diverse and widespread. There are over seven thousand living species of frogs. They they come in about five hundred different genera and fifty five or so different families. Frogs make up nearly ninety percent of living amphibian species. Yeah, so it's, <laughs> this is one of those where amphibians include frogs, salamanders, and Sicilians, but if an alien were to take a glance, amphibians yep. are frogs. <laughs> yep, but frogs are to amphibians what squamates are to reptiles. Yes. It's like, yes, there are 25 or so crocodilians, there are like 400 or so turtle species, which is, that's a lot. That's a lot of turtles. There's one, maybe even two tuataras. Yeah. And then there are like 10,000 lizard and snake species. Uh, <laughs> there are more frog species than there are mammal species in the world today. They are <laughs> extremely diverse. They live everywhere. The only places on the planet where you won't find frogs are the poles. Yep. A handful of islands out in the oceans where they haven't gotten to, and a few particularly nasty deserts. There are desert frogs. Yes, there are. Just not in every desert. Frogs inhabit all sorts of habitats. We have them here, right here in our mountains around us here in East Tennessee. You get them in rainforest. You get them high on mountains. You get them in deserts. There are frogs that burrow. There are frogs that climb trees. There are frogs... Mostly they live in freshwater, but there are saltwater frogs. Incredible diversity. Let me go through a handful of a few families of frogs to, to get us a sense of what these animals are. Some of the most famous frogs are in the family Ranidae, which are known as the true frogs. These are typically smooth, moist skinned. They're all over the world. This includes bullfrogs, wood frogs, leopard frogs, and, you know, bajillions more yeah, the ones that uh, most people are typically thinking of when you think of the ones making noises in your backyard and stuff hylidae are your tree frogs and they do include tree frogs also things like chorus frogs this group also includes burrowing frogs they're not all in trees As you, no opposite and it includes some of a multiple group classification that are known as flying frogs yeah. there are gliders 
most frogs, well, many frogs at the very least, have webbed toes because they're swimmers. Mm -hmm. Gliding frogs often use their webbing between their toes and between their limbs to glide through the air. They have massive, like proportionally, massive feet. And they just spread the toes in the webbing and make four little parachutes as they jump. And you'll see them, they'll angle them all so that their body kind of turns into one little wing. And it's awesome. That has evolved in frogs multiple times. There's not one group that, like snakes, there is one group of gliding snakes. Frogs have done it bunches of times. (laughs) Like mammals, like rodents. Rodents have done it. Well, it's like uh, the first one jumped out and did that, and then all of them looked down at their hands to see (laughs) there was webbing there as well. I have wings, too. (laughs) My God. One of the most uh, diverse groups of frogs are the microhylidae, the narrow-mouth frogs, of which there are over 60 genera, more than any other frog family. The dendrobatidae are a tropical, colorful group that you know as poison dart frogs, which are... Highly toxic. Buffonidae are what are known as the true toads. Yes. Now, a note on toads. There's no actual scientific distinction between frog and toad. It's like turtle and tortoise. Yeah, whereas like Buffonidae is the group where most or all of them are called toads. But there are other frogs and other families that are also called toads. Like turtles, there is a family that is kind of technically the tortoises. But colloquially, there are other turtles that are called tortoises outside of that. Buffonidae, named for uh, one of the more popular genus, the, the genus in the group, Bufo, hey. which is Latin for toad, includes European green toads, cane toads of, of infamy, <laughs> <laughs> which, uh, which are boo because not only are frogs widespread and diverse naturally... They also can be highly invasive. Yeah, cane toads are like one of the... I don't, I don't want to say one of the worst, because I'm sure people from Australia might have others that they'd argue with me <laughs> on, but like one of the most infamous invasive species in Australia and here in like down in Florida. Yeah. And it's they're highly, highly, highly toxic and kill lots of stuff. Yep. True toads are often uh, toothless. They are often warty. And yeah, they have these poisonous glands, usually on the head, these parotid glands. They look like big old warts or pimples that just ooze poison. This group actually includes a lot of the, uh, 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 what you may have heard called psychedelic toads. Yes. The ones that you can lick for all sorts of strange neurological effects. Which, yeah, the reason they're psychedelic is because it's poisoning you. Yep. And it would, if you took enough, shut down... (laughs) Those parts, it's making work funny. Yep, that's your your brain not working right. Yes, it's bad. <laughs> and there are tons more. This is a little tiny glimpse of frog diversity. I'm sure, odds are, listeners, if you have a favorite frog, I have not mentioned it. Uh, Will, do you have a favorite frog? <sighs> I know it's probably, like, it's cliche, but the Goliath frog, which is the biggest alive today... Uh, I think it's also called the rocket frog, maybe. But the Goliath frog is this giant, like, foot-long almost frog that can leap, like, the you know, multiple adult human lengths, body lengths, uh, and doesn't croak, if I remember right. Like, it's very, hmm. it's quiet for a frog. Interesting. And it's just these giant frogs, and I, they're awesome. Uh, so the next thing on my list was going to be mentioning the largest and smallest hey! frogs. <laughs> and yes, the Goliath frog. 
Conrala Goliath uh, is from Africa. I've seen size ranges up to 32 centimeters, 13 inches, so a little over a foot, and seven pounds. Yeah. So that's almost the size of my cat. Big frog. On the other side of the spectrum, the, the frog that I have seen called the smallest frog, and indeed, I believe... The smallest vertebrate. Yeah, I was, I was I was about to ask. I was pretty sure amphibians also had that one. I believe bag. so. Is Pedophryne amanuensis of Papua New Guinea, which is not quite eight millimeters long from snout to vent, which means basically nose to butt, which is less than a centimeter. It's, it's like a third of an inch. Yes. <laughs> super, super tiny little frog. It's which... That gets into the category of how can you still have bones? How are you still functioning? Like, that's so small. (laughs) And then, of course, you know, a frog that's not on my list. Uh, Wood frogs, I believe, are the ones that freeze themselves in the winter and then come out afterwards. You've got the the, the gastric brooding frogs, which had their babies hanging out in their stomachs. Swallow their eggs and let them hatch in there. You have... uh, there's there's some one rainforest frog that this this one would be a, com- a competitor for a favorite frog for me is the male they they lay their eggs in bromeliads mm-hmm. and then when they hatch the male gathers up a single tadpole at a time onto their back and their back has a little like sadly section for the baby to nestle into and then they hop them to a different bromeliad so that each tadpole has its own pool and they won't eat each other. And then he goes and checks on them and will feed them and make sure they're each doing okay until they all metamorphose. Like, best dad frog. Very cool. Let's talk about some other aspects of frog lives. Diets. Frogs are, as a general rule, carnivores. Yeah. They typically eat small invertebrates or sometimes small vertebrates. There are plant-eating frogs and there are omnivorous frogs, but for the most part, they're carnivores. Uh, most of them uh, get food with their tongues, which sometimes is like the way lizards do it. Like if you have, have bearded dragons do this, where they're like, let yeah, pick it's it like, up. The example I always use is if you've ever eaten popcorn and you've bit yep. and pulled a piece of popcorn in your mouth. That's what we mean when we, with the typical lizard yep. is you're just help letting it help move it into your mouth. So there are frogs that do that. And then, of course, there are frogs with projectile tongues that grab food though not like you they don't look like the chameleon shoot out in a straight line which some newts do mm-hmm. uh even though all the cartoons always show them having these long elastic yep whip tongues it's more of like a big sticky spatula they can flap out on it, the it, stuff it's like those toys those sticky yes, hands the sticky toys. hands that's yeah. what it is it's, it's a <laughs> sticky hand on a on a short stretchy bit that they just go blah We talked about amphibian skin, and frogs have all sorts of glands in their skin for secretion, moistening, poisoning. Uh, They're semi-permeable, as I mentioned, which means they breathe through their skin. They can breathe underwater because of that skin. When I was doing some background research on frogs, I was on the Wikipedia page, and I came across the following sentence. A frog deprived of its lungs can maintain its body functions without them. Which makes me think, A, that's really cool, and B, how do you know that? Right. There was a reference. Uh, this was referenced to a 1972 book called The Observer's Book of British Wild Animals, which I did not go looking into. I can only assume that they got that information through purely humane means. Yeah, no. Because uh, why would you go about any other, <laughs> any other tasks? 
That also made me think of the hairy frogs, which are not hairy, but have extended little bits of skin like hairs that give them more surface area to better breathe underwater to where they are almost completely aquatic, never having to come up for air frogs. There's also some frogs, I can't remember who this is, but the frogs that like poke their bones through their skin, Mm -hmm. like Wolverine. Yes, they have a little bit of the tip of the finger bone that can puncture their the toe pad and gives them little little claws yep of course another famous thing perhaps the most famous thing about frogs is that they are extremely noisy yes frogs are are. vocal they are which is and and we're not talking like crocodilians are vocal yeah they bellow and they hiss and they make all sorts of noise bats are vocal right Uh, they got squeaks and they're echolocating frogs there are very few ways in which frogs are a lot like birds, <laughs> but this is one of them. Yes. <laughs> frogs sing and they chirp. Uh, searching for frogs is a completely different experience. Like if you're herping, you're going out looking for frogs. It's a totally different experience looking for frogs versus looking for salamanders. You can stand in a field and know which species of frogs are nearby. Yeah, you can know what your options are. Yeah. Lots and lots of frogs have a call or a croak. Oftentimes these are amplified by their vocal sacs. So you'll, you'll, the classic image is the, the throat pouch kind of expanding. Some of these are very loud. Like you can hear them over hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of feet. Some far, very far reaching. Typically these are mating calls. Males are calling out to females for mating purposes yeah general rule if animals are being real noisy when it's not territory most of the time it's it's mating so yeah and frog calls tend to be unique to their species you can identify a frog species by the sound it makes which a is very cool and b is a particularly poignant note given that the theme of this podcast is paleontology yeah that is a thing we do not get we, we have no clue. We do not know the sounds of ancient frogs. One of the most useful diagnostic identifying features of frogs doesn't fossilize. Yeah, it's not only is it behavioral, but the parts they use to do that behavior are all soft. So one can only imagine if you took a trip 20, 40, 80 million years ago, what kind of frogs you would hear. And this is uh, goes along with that whole idea of if we brought back fossil animals that paleontologists would just be able to be like, oh, you've resurrected a this. But it's like, we could take a single species of fossil frog and resurrect them and get like five species potentially. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so they all start chirping in different ways. Yep. They're just identical otherwise. Speaking of mating calls, frog reproduction, uh, as we said, they lay aquatic eggs. You, typically, frogs are laying eggs in water and then leaving them there. But... There are frogs that lay eggs on land. Mm -hmm. There are frogs that give live birth. And about 10% of frogs are parents. There are some good parents. Really parental frogs, which is not something they're associated with. Nope. A lot of them create nests, often defending the nests, like what you were saying about. Some even care to the young. There's the really popular video that I see pop up all the time of the African bullfrog that creates a nursery pool. And then as the tadpoles start to out, or no, it's as the drought starts to deplete it, digs a trench between that and the larger pond Mm -hmm. to allow the tadpoles to swim into the open, the remaining water. 
Yeah. And it's like that like complex parental care. Uh, frogs are known to store eggs in burrows, bromeliads, like you said, in pouches, like on their back. Yes. At least one or two in their stomachs. Uh, and then uh, some make foam nests. All sorts of diversity in their reproductive habits. Which brings us to one of the other most famous things about frogs, tadpoles. Yeah. Frogs have a biphasic lifestyle. Their larvae are called tadpoles, and a tadpole is not a frog. <laughs> it's basically an amphibian fish. It's a it's a head. It's a <laughs> trunk with a mouth, gills, and a long tail. Yep. And the tail wiggles around so they can swim. I have seen tadpoles described in scientific paper as essentially a free-living embryo. Yeah. This is an embryo that swims around. Tadpoles are also very diverse. There are carnivores, herbivores, planktivores. There are some that don't eat. That's not their job. They have specialized mouth parts with a little beak and denticles. They don't have teeth as tadpoles, but they do have mouth parts to help them eat stuff. Like scrape algae and things. And tadpoles are a... We discussed in the news that you've got all this selective pressure functioning around a larva and an adult that live completely different lifestyles. But not all frogs have tadpoles. There are some that are direct developers. They are born as little tiny frogs and, we and mentioned get bigger. Of, we mentioned some of those in uh, New Zealand. That's true. Episode 86 and uh, in Metamorphosis, episode 81, we talked about uh, direct developers. Uh, here in the Americas, there's an entire family of frogs, the Crogastoridae, which are direct developing frogs. Not the only ones. So frogs are very diverse, very interesting. They've got all these different lifestyles. One more thing I want to discuss about frogs. I want to take a little bit of a little zoom in. Let's all gather in. Get close. Let's all gather in and talk about the skeleton of a frog. Yay. Because we're talking paleontology. And when you're looking for fossils, this is usually what you have to go on. And frog skeletons are so weird. Because if you think about the shape of a frog, animals are not shaped that way. Let's start at the head. Frogs have what are called pedicellate teeth, which, well, you mentioned in episode 88, which are teeth where the root and the crown, the bottom and the top, are separated by some fibrous tissue. Yep. Makes them a little flexible. Which is still... Very weird. Typically, frogs don't have teeth on the lower jaw, but they do have teeth on the top. They have often have wide, short heads, big mouths. Their backbone is very short. Frogs tend to have between six and ten vertebrae between their head and their hips. Which, like, that's insanely close. <laughs> Very short backbone. And they only have one neck vertebra. We have seven, and the first two are the atlas and the axis. Frogs have an atlas. And that's, I think it's a complex. But regardless, they have one vertebra that basically allows them to move their head around. And then it's backbone. Along that backbone, there are no ribs. Nope. No ribs. They have these transverse processes coming off the sides of the vertebrae, but they do not have ribs like we do. And then you get to the hips. Frog, hi frog hips are some of the most iconic parts of a frog skeleton. They have these long ilia on the sides, sort of the curved sides of the, of the hip, and then a bone straight down the middle that is called the Eurostyle, which is this long hollow bar, which is actually... Uh, fused tailbones that creates this long hip, the ilium, ilia, one on each side, two ilia, and the Eurostyle are super iconic bones. One of the cool things about frogs in the fossil record is that 
Oh, there are a lot of frog bones that when you pick it up, you know you have a frog. Yeah, instantly he's like, oh, that's can't be anything but frog. You find a Euro style, that bar down the middle of the hip, that is a frog. You find an Ilium. Ilia are a lot of the time what are used to identify fossil frogs. They are so characteristic of different species of frogs. If you get to the back of the hip, you will find that frogs have done a thing that we humans can agree is very strange. They don't have tails. No tails. What a weird thing to do. And then their legs are long, especially their hind legs. Very long hind legs. The ankle bones even are extended. And their zugopodia, which is your radius and ulna on the arm, tibia and fibula on the leg, sort of the lower arm, lower leg, the two bones are fused into a radio ulna and a tibiofibula, which are hollow. Another bone that when you find it, you have found a frog. That was the first frog bone I ever found digging at Gray. Yep, at the Gray site. I'll, we, when we go through the little, the micro fossils, the tiny stuff, frogs. Real easy to identify if you found the right pieces. So frog bones are very strange. They're, they're, they're very unique. A lot of them are very handy for identification. And all of this strange body structure is tied into probably the actually most famous thing about frogs that we haven't discussed yet. They jump. They jump good. They are leapers, hoppers. They ex- exhibit what is known as saltatory locomotion or saltation. They are not the only animals that do it. I, rabbits, kangaroos, uh, orthopterans. Like kangaroo rats. Kangaroo rats. But boy, are they, they, they have to be the most diverse, at least vertebrates. They, they are, are saltators. Like, not only are they extremely diverse, they're also real good at it. Like, when you think of a rabbit jumping, like, that's a that's a good hop. Right? Rabbits hop. Yep. Frogs leap. <laughs> and indeed, uh, a, a couple of uh, Animal Planet's most extreme. The Australian rocket frog. That's the one I was thinking of. <laughs> is a 40 millimeter long frog that can jump more than two meters. It can jump 55 body lengths. Now, I don't want to, like, fall into general tropes, but I did do the math. And if I could jump 55 body lengths, that would be, that would mean I could jump a football field. (laughs) Most extreme. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, There's another one I found in a paper that making a reference to an Asian genus called Euphlictus, which can jump, which can float on the surface of the water and jump off the water. It's so cool. And that body shape, right? The hip is partially mobile. Mm-hmm. That bar down the middle has a bracing structure. The fused leg bones are there to add in strength. The long structure of the limbs is there for extra pushing. Their hands are adapted for catching themselves back on the ground. That short, rigid backbone is there. Because if you ever picked up a rabbit, it's like, why are you like this? Why are you <laughs> floppy? You're going to break yourself. Are you made out of springs? Frogs are kind of, once again, uh, one of the few ways frogs are a lot like birds. They've kind of braced and condensed a lot of their skeletal structure so that they can move through the air long distances. Well, and their giant weird hips act very much as like a hinge to help add flexure and add push to their jumps yeah like if you if you picture or if you look up a picture of the typical bullfrog sitting and they've got that little bump back toward the hips on their back that's the top of the 
the hips. That's the top of those bones, and that part hinges. Yep. So they are literally like a when they're sitting, a condensed spring that just unfolds. And the skeletal aspects of jumping are complemented by the musculature. Mm-hmm. The leg muscles account in many frogs for more than 17% of their body mass. This this is an animal that is largely leg. Yes. But something that's really interesting about frogs is that this whole skeletal setup, obviously great for jumping, but there are frogs that burrow and swim and climb. This structure is also good for other stuff. It makes me think of snakes. When you have developed a body shape that is great for probably burrowing, but then you took it and you went, oh, I can also climb and jump and swim and glide and do whatever I want. What it makes me think of is primates. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a good point. Is you, you've, you, they've emphasized their limbs in a way that allows them to be good in a lot. Like you're good on mountains, you're good in trees, you're good in fields. And you, they even have like the monkey frog, which literally walks around the trees hand over hand like a little monkey. Yeah. Like, yep. they're just <laughs> very adaptable, very diverse. Also, on the note of the muscles, if you haven't ever gotten to dissect a frog, and for those of you who have, they're buff. Oh, yeah. Their muscles are, like, they are cut. My frog had abs. <laughs> like, notable, it was ripped. So it, they are powerful little creatures. They sure are. So frogs are just all sorts of fascinating but how did they get this way? The question of frog origins, let's let's go from the more modern all the way back to where frogs came from. And the question of frog origins is tied very tightly into the question of the origins of a group called Lysamphibia. Lysamphibia includes all modern amphibians. Frogs, which are anurans, salamanders, which are caudatans, and sicilians, which are gymnophiona, also of note, there was a fourth group. There is an extinct fourth group within Lysamphibia, the Albinerpatontids, which were kind of salamander-like, which lived from the Jurassic to the early Pleistocene. So only a couple million years ago, they went extinct. Bummer. Frogs and salamanders are generally thought to be very closely related in a group called Batrachia, but all of them, frogs, salamanders, and Sicilians, are considered part of this typically monophyletic, one group, called Lysamphibia. So when we think about reptiles, right, crocs and lizards are way not related to each other. Oh, yeah. Like distant, distant, distant. Very distant. And in between them, there's dinosaurs and pterosaurs and plesiosaurs and all sorts of other stuff. Amphibians were once very, very widespread and diverse, but the amphibians we have today appear to belong to a group. The origins of this group are tricky. They're tricky for a few reasons. One, amphibians don't fossilize particularly well. Remember all those hollow bones we were mentioning? The, they just <laughs> don't. They, they tend to be small. They tend to be rather rather delicate. The early fossil record of amphibians is particularly not great. People have tried to sort of supplement this with molecular studies, genetic comparisons to say, hey, how, when did you originate? Molecular estimates of the origin of Lysamphibia, amphibians as we know them, range from the early Permian, around 300 or so million years ago, 
to the Devonian <laughs> like 400 million years ago. <laughs> the molecular data is, is very varied. And we don't know who their ancestors were. There are three main hypotheses as to who gave rise to frogs. Who done it? Who done it? If we take a trip back to the late Paleozoic, amphibians were everywhere, and there were all different types of amphibians. There were no frogs, salamanders, or Sicilians, but there were ancient relatives of them. The first hypothesis of lysamphibian origins, which is the most common and widespread one, is called the temnospondyl hypothesis, which purports that modern amphibians originated from a group called temnospondyls. This is a group that lived mostly from the Carboniferous to the Triassic. Often they were one to two meters. Yeah. Sizable. And kind of croc-like. Yeah. Sprawling limbs, long bodies, long tails, heavily ossified. So they were like a a little bit armored, a little bit rugose, a little Mm -hmm. rigid. Tough skeletons. Specifically, there is a group of temnospondyls called the Amphibamids, which have been most commonly linked to lysamphibians. So if this is the connection, that's my favorite frog. Uh, Big croc salamanders. Big croc salamanders. (laughs) (laughs) There are a handful of famous specimens from North America, including Amphibamus and Dolicerpaton, which show features of the ears and the vertebrae that look a lot like lysamphibian. They have pedicillate teeth. There is a Permian temnospondyl called Gerobotrachus, which has a short spine, like we see in frogs, a wide skull. So the temnospondyl hypothesis suggests this group, this particular group of temnospondyls is where lysamphibians came from. Although there was a recent study in 2017 by Jason Pardo et al. that was looking at a slightly different group, close but different group of temnospondyls called stereospondyls. And said, boy, those have a lot in common with Sicilians. Oh. So that study was saying, well, it might be that frogs and salamanders came from this temnospondyl group and Sicilians were like one or two groups over. Which means that either Lysamphibia is broken or that what we call Lysamphibia needs to also include a little chunk of the temnospondyl family tree with the stereospondyls. And and this is... This is where you get into the the difficulty with phylogenetics of who, who's closer to what, yep. in what ways. <laughs> but generally speaking, the most common hypothesis for lysamphibian origins is temnospondyls. But it's not the only one. There are some pioneers still today of a second hypothesis called the lepospondyl hypothesis, which suggests that they originated from lepospondyls. This is a different group of Paleozoic amphibians, which includes... To name one, Diplocolis. Ooh, that's that's also pretty cool. The famous boomerang-headed one. Although that one's not part of the group that is thought to directly give rise to Lysamphibia. That, uh, specifically what is usually brought up, are a group called the Lycerophians, which are very eel-like. Long bodies, reduced limbs. There are a couple other nearby families that are also kind of snaky. These are particularly compared to Sicilians. Interesting. Whereas the temnospondyl hypothesis, a lot of those features are like, ah, oh, salamanders and frogs share a lot of these. The lepospondyls, well, oh, but Sicilians share a lot of these, so maybe the group originated over here. And then there is the third hypothesis, which is that everyone's wrong and everyone's also a little bit right. <laughs> this is called the polyphyly hypothesis, which says 
salamanders and frogs are temnospondyls and Sicilians are lepospondyls, and we're wrong about Lysamphibia being a single group. Yeah, and that's that's often something that can potentially kind of muddy the waters or at least slow down uh, new views on something like this is if Lysamphibia has been considered a single group for a very long time, which I don't know what the origins of Lysamphibia, like what date it was first brought about, but I, I've heard of that being the group for quite some time. Right. <laughs> if it's held up for that long, if it turns out that it's not a single group, it can often take a kind of almost proportionately long time to now disprove that it was a single group. Right. Because it has a lot of history behind it. So for the time being, we're not quite sure where the amphibians came from. We have a couple of good candidates. Most people seem to favor the Temnospondyl hypothesis, but it's not the only one out there. Uh, Lepospondyls are interesting because we also don't know where they came from. <laughs> like where they fit on the, the amphibian family tree is unsure. <laughs> so like that would just be pushing the marker back. <laughs> I feel like that's when you're putting together a puzzle and you have like, I'm, I'm putting together the edges and then there's the one person who's just putting together a middle section of the puzzle that connects to nothing else that's being put together. <laughs> yep. And it's just floating around on the inside. Maybe this goes over there. Ah, it doesn't help us. <laughs> In any case, whichever of these are true, it does at least tell us that the most likely sister groups and the most likely ancestors of Lysamphibia, frogs and their friends, were around late Carboniferous into the Permian, which does fit within the range of the molecular dates. Mm -hmm. That is our best bet at the origins, the youngest relative, that sort of youngest potential ancestors and, and close cousins are in the Permian period. Yeah, currently, even the cautious arrows are pointing us that way. Which leads us to a conundrum. The oldest definite frog salamanders and Sicilians are Jurassic. Wow, that's a jump. <laughs> Which means there is a gap. And in fact, a 2013 study by David Marjanovic and Michelle Lauren named it Carol's Gap after Robert Carroll, a famous uh, amphibian researcher who actually passed away earlier this year. Aww. Carroll's Gap is a span of a good 70 million years where we have almost no amphibian fossils. Oh, that's an insane gap. Which makes it very difficult to really assess who is connected to who. But the fossil record of frogs as we know them, starts in the Triassic period. And when we come back from our break, we will take a journey through the fossil history of frogs. Oh boy. If you were to take a trip to Madagascar... In the early Triassic, 250 million years ago or so, you would come across, if you, if you looked hard, you would come across the animal that is typically referred to as the first frog. In much the same way that Archaeopteryx is the first bird. Yes. Is it a bird? Kind of a bird? Here is kind of a frog. Its name is Triadobatrachus massinodi. It is, according to those who have researched it, Lysamphibian. It is seemingly... Batrachian, which means frog and salamander group. 
many have linked it to frogs. If you Google first frog, if you look for fossil frogs, this is the one that will show up as here is your ancestral frog. It's it's the best we've got for that <laughs> that category right now. For now. It looks like a long frog or maybe a short salamander. Yeah, that's <laughs> the first time I was ever shown it. That's exactly how it was described. Is it's it it's kind of cutting the difference. It ha- it's known from a single fossil that shows a bunch of features that seem to link it to to frogs. It has long hip bones and long foot bones, very froggy. It has a mere fifteen vertebrae in its back. Which, notably, is intermediate between frogs and those Permian temnospondyls we were talking about that already were showing shortening of the, the spinal column. Like frogs, uh, Triadobotrachus has no teeth on the dentary, the lower jaw, but it does have a, a bit of tail, so, which, which hurts it. It's Scandalous. Listen, you're not a real frog. <laughs> and in much the same way that with Archaeopteryx, the first bird, People have argued for decades over the question of, could it fly? <laughs> there have been a, at least two studies that I saw that have specifically tried to address the question, could Triadobotrachus jump? Can it hop? Was it? Could it? Listen, if you can't jump, are you really a frog? Right. Uh, I made a lot of frogs angry when I said that. <laughs> Multiple studies have suggested, no, that this was not a jumper. And in fact, there was a 2016 study I read by Andres Lear et al., which compared limb measurements across living frogs, salamanders, lizards, and based on these morphological comparisons, concluded that Triadobotrachus probably used undulatory movements like salamanders. Huh. Wiggle side to side. Okay. Uh, which is also how lizards often move. It's how crocs tend to move. So they point out that even though Triadobotrachus has some froggy features, it's got those long hips... It's got the the long foot bones. It's got the shortened spine. Those may have originated for something else and then were co-opted as helpful for jumping later. Episode 78 was about exaptation. Mm -hmm. You evolved weird hips and then later evolution went, hey, jump over that that river. Yeah, and then one frog got (laughs) real scared one time and everyone went, whoa! Look at him go! On the note of exaptation, I have a thought. I'm not a frog researcher, so this may have already been looked into. I don't know. But frogs swim the same way they hop. That's true. They swim. If, if, if anyone is a swimmer out there, the breaststroke where you kick your legs simultaneously in mirror forms of each other. That's how frogs swim, by kicking their legs true, true. in a jumping pattern. I wonder maybe if it wasn't a swimming tool before it was a hopping tool. Or was it like bats, where it's like, your your arms are handy for you to swim, but they were clearly not built to do that. Yes. Yeah. Interesting. I That I don't know. I, I didn't see anything about that. Yeah. Or if it was just, maybe it was an option of, you still swim like a salamander, but when you get scared, you kick. You have a kick. And you, poof, like a, like a lobster. Who's to say? Yeah. There is also another early Triassic frog, a potential frog relative from Poland, known from incomplete remains, named Chatcobatrachus, uh, which is another early list amphibian, maybe related. And then in 2019, uh, Michelle Stocker et al. published on the discovery of a single frog ilium. You remember? Ilia and the hips, useful for ID. From the late Triassic of Arizona, around 215 million years ago. All they had was this single part of a hip, but they noted 
that it is very tiny and very similar to living frog ilia. So maybe there were frogs as we know them in the late Triassic, or something very similar to living frogs. But we don't know. Also of note, when we're trying to suss out frog origins, the three examples I just listed of Triassic frogs came from Madagascar, Poland, and Arizona. Yeah, I was noticing that. We also don't know where frogs came from. (laughs) And the fact that they're so widespread suggests that there was probably a huge diversity that we're missing. Like, oh yeah, that this group was doing well and we just didn't get to, we haven't gotten to see it yet. (laughs) But the Triassic falls within Carol's Gap, that huge span where we just don't have stuff. But on the other side of Carol's Gap is the Jurassic. And there we see the first true, everyone generally agrees, that is a frog. Now we have frog. And the famous one from the early Jurassic of Arizona is called Procelerus bitus, named in 1995 by Neil Shubin and Farish Jenkins, known from two fossils. This is a frog that lived about 190 million years ago. It was about 50 millimeters from nose to butt, so about five centimeters, mm-hmm. two inches. It has pedicellate teeth, long hips, with a Euro style down the middle. It has fused zoogopodia, meaning it has a radio ulna and a tibio fibula. It's a frog. Sure sounds like frog. It's not all frog. It's got some strange features in the skull and the hips. It has ribs, like short ribs. What are you doing with those? Which is a weird thing for a frog to have. But given all these features, it is generally agreed that Procelerus, and if you know... Your, I think this is Latin, maybe, maybe, I, I guess it's Latin. Procelerus means leaping forward. Procelerus could jump. It has all the features, everyone's, eh, that, that's a jumping frog. This is a frog who jumps. Well named. It's also found in the same uh, uh, general region as Eo Sicilia, the oldest known Sicilian. Neat. Another famous Jurassic example of frogs is Notobotrachus from the mid to late Jurassic of Argentina, This one is interesting because unlike every other one we've mentioned so far, which have all been known from one or two, Notobotrachus is known from several localities across Argentina around 165 million years ago and tons of specimens. This is the best known Jurassic frog. They are preserved as impressions, often articulated, meaning parts of the skeleton are still with each other yeah, connected. associated with the bones they should be next to right roughly the shape of a frog skeleton yeah the this bone connects to the bone it should <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> i saw one paper from 2004 laura nikolai et al did a study on variation and ontogeny and i studied about a hundred individuals of notobotrigus wow so by the mid to late jurassic we don't just have a couple of frogs we have frogs we have populations of frogs Other examples exist in the Jurassic. There's Virela from Middle Jurassic Argentina. Uh, Radinosteus is from the late Jurassic uh, of the Western U.S. Dinosaur National Monument, which appears to be a cousin of modern-day burrowing frogs. There are also some maybe frogs from India, a couple from the Morrison Formation in the U.S. So in the Jurassic, we have frogs. Actual true frogs, but again, they are everywhere. They're all over the place. Frogs had by the Jurassic made it all over the world, which 
again, makes it difficult to assess where actually did you come from. Yeah, did you spread from here to there or there to here? Like, if they're everywhere, you've glossed over the origins of how you got everywhere. (laughs) Yep. And then we move into the Cretaceous period. And in the Cretaceous, we have frogs. We start seeing relative modern... uh, We start seeing representatives of modern-day frog groups. In the early Cretaceous of Spain, we see uh, uh, there's a a fairly calm... Eodiscoglossus comes from the early Cretaceous of Spain. It belongs to the group Alitidae, which includes modern painted frogs and midwife toads. Early Cretaceous of China, we see Liaobatrachus, which is a pelobatid, which is a relative of European spadefoots. Spadefoot. Spadefoot toads, which are these little burrowers. Neat. In 2018, a paper identified the oldest known tropical rainforest frog, which they named Electrorana, which was found in Burmese Amber from the late Cretaceous. Uh, The unknown family. It has not been identified to what family it came from. That's a cool amber find. It is a very cool amber find. So not only are we seeing groups that we have today, but ecologies, lifestyles that we have today, rainforest uh, habitat. Others in the Cretaceous, we see members of Pipidae, which today includes the clawed frogs, like Xenopus, I believe, is in there. Leptodactylidae, which includes lots of Central and South American frogs that are around today. And we see early members of a group called the Paleobatrachids, which are not around today, but were distant cousins of clawed frogs. That lived from the Cretaceous to the Pleistocene. Wow. So we just missed out on these this extinct group of frogs. Most of the Cenozoic had Paleobatrachids, and they show up in the Cretaceous. And these are all over the world. We're seeing different groups of frogs. We are starting to see what look like recognizable, familiar groups of frogs that we would have around today. But of course, there is one other example that I am obligated to talk about. And if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard us talk about this frog. It is the best frog. It is my favorite frog because it has my favorite scientific name of any animal ever. It's hard to beat. We talked about this frog in episode 40, Madagascar. This is the devil toad. Let's take a moment and talk about the devil toad. I mentioned earlier that bufo is the Latin word for frog. This is a particular frog discovered, named in 2008, discovered from the latest Cretaceous of Madagascar, around 65 to 70 million years old. It is quite large. It is bumpy and spiky. And so the researchers called it the devil toad. They named it Beelzebufo Ampinga. Beelzebufo. Listen, hey, listen, everybody. I, I don't go on the record saying, like, solid stances very mm-hmm. often. Beelzebufo is the best scientific name anyone has ever given an animal. (laughs) Fight me. Susan Evans, way to go. Good job. Susan Evans et al., I should say. 2008. Beelzebufo is huge. (laughs) It has an estimated snout vent length of 42 centimeters, which is 20 inches. Wow. So over a foot and a half. Wow. Its skull is six inches wide. It's got this huge skull. It has this very bony and bumpy skull, so it's all rugose and bumpy. Like, if you think of uh, horned lizards or something, it's got kind of that rugosity on the skull. Yeah. It is identified as belonging to a group called the Ceratophrinidae, horned frogs. 
we have horned frogs today. They live in South America, not in Madagascar, but we have them today. This is another Cretaceous example of a, 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 a modern group of frogs. Bielzabufo is considered to probably have been a predator, as most frogs are, with a powerful bite. <laughs> it has this robust skull for biting. Uh, the Ceratophrynids include the horn frogs, but also Pac-Man frogs. Yep, I was about to say, like, if you've ever <laughs> seen someone get bitten by a Pac-Man frog, I've never been bitten, but it never looks like it's comfortable. No. <laughs> it looks like it hurts. I like to imagine... One thing we didn't actually mention in when we talked about diet and habits is that frogs will also use their hands for feeding. Yes. And it's just one of the most delightful things to see a frog's big mouth grabbing onto something and just shoving it into its mouth with its hands. It has a very almost job of the hut uh, look to it. Because they will just, they'll especially like a bullfrog, slap its tongue out, pull the food in, and then just both hands come and just, oh, just shove like it in there. cartoonishly jamming it into the mouth. It's like when you watch Scooby and Shaggy, you just push a sub sandwich <laughs> yep. into their mouth, like just shoving the food in. Now, Beelzebufo was probably eating whatever would fit in its mouth. And if it was anything like modern frogs, maybe some things that didn't. Yeah, like when I tell people that cane toads have been known to eat mice, they're horrified. But if it fits, they will eat it. Yep. There have been a bunch of paleo-artistic reconstructions I've seen of Beelzebufo eating tiny dinosaurs. <laughs> um, also a thing that I, I noted while looking uh, researching Beelzebufo, um, it is thought to have maybe been a seasonal burrower. Mm. That it may have like burrowed into the, the sediment when it, during the time of the year that it, was, that it needed to, basically. Also, while Beelzebufo is the devil toad, best name ever, Ampinga means shield, if I remember correctly. Referring to the rugosity over its head and, and, and possibly its back. At the very least, its head. The shielded devil toad. The shielded devil toad. It's just, it's uh, so it's, cool. It's what you guys are fighting in D&D tonight. Check the, <laughs> <laughs> check the blog post. Now, a couple other things I want to make mention of in the Cretaceous. A couple of other firsts. The early Cretaceous of South Korea yields the oldest known frog footprints. Aww. These were identified in 2019 by Kyung Soo Kim et al. from the Jinju Formation of South Korea, which I think is the same formation you talked about, Croc Footprints. That may have been in a bonus news. Oh, yeah. Hey, if you are on, if you join us on Patreon, uh, you get bonus news. This is a, a place, you, there's dinosaur tracks, pterosaurs, crocs, lizards, mammals, turtles, and frogs. That paper reported three trackway segments preserving, and this is how they phrased it, complete or partial hops. Hops! Hops! They hopped across this this sediment. That makes me so happy. (laughs) (laughs) Little frog hops. Little frog hops preserved in the sediment. They identified them as uh, an ichnogenus, as we've mentioned before. Footprints get their own taxonomic names. Ranopes, frog feet, which is also known from one other place in South Korea, plus Utah, uh, examples in the Cretaceous and the Cenozoic, and that's all the frog fossil footprints. That It is the only fossil frog ichnogenus, because we don't, there's hardly any frog footprints. I was, when you said frog footprints to begin with, I was 
taken aback because I had never heard of any. And that explains why. Yep, because they, they almost don't exist. Crazy. And then there's another thing I want to talk about in the Cretaceous, because the early Cretaceous is also superlative for the oldest, and boy was I so excited, the oldest known fossil, ready? Mm-hmm. Tadpoles. Oh, I was so hoping that's what you are going to say. I read that in a paper. So I'm like, oh, these are the oldest known tadpoles. And I went, what? And so I googled fossil record of tadpoles. And I found a 2019 paper by James Gardner entitled The Fossil Record of Tadpoles. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Thanks, James Gardner. This will be in the blog post. <laughs> this paper lists over 40 localities between the Cretaceous and the Miocene that preserve tadpole fossils. Most of them are in Europe, but there's also a handful each in Asia, Africa, North America, South America. These are all body fossils, usually skeletons plus soft tissue sometimes molds, sometimes mineralized. All of them are in lakes, which tracks with tadpoles. Most of them belong to the Pipidae, so the clawed frog group, or the Paleobotrachidae, so that recently extinct frog group. And they've been super handy for ontogenetic studies, understanding the growth cycles of ancient frogs. The two oldest ones, the two record-setting ones, are both early Cretaceous, both about 130 million years old, and I have to mention both of them. One is from a site called Santa Maria de Mir in northeastern Spain. It consists of a single undescribed tadpole. I saw two papers that referenced personal communication. <laughs> and sometimes you'll read a paper and it'll say, there is a, a tadpole undescribed from Spain, parentheses, personal communication with so-and-so, which basically means I know a guy who's seen it yeah. and told me about it, but it's not actually written up yet nearby that discovery are uh, early cretaceous frogs eodiscoglossus and nusibatrachus but we don't know what this tadpole belongs to that one sounds like what i would expect from the oldest known tadpole fossil mm -hmm. a single tadpole that no one actually knows anything about the other one same age early cretaceous 130 million years old is from wadi el mali in israel and it consists of an assemblage of 270 tadpoles. See, when you were first saying <laughs> tadpole fossils, I was expecting like a moderate number in between <laughs> of like, we found a little grouping of like five to 10. Nope. No, one or 200. 270 <laughs> tadpoles named Shamronella and in and amongst the tadpoles, a single froglet. That's so little adorable. Yeah. Little, little, almost frog. Yes. Nah, not quite a frog yet. Uh, and in fact, the, the, apparently the people who have studied it have suggested that the fact that we have all these tadpoles, but no adult frogs might mean that this species was terrestrial, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that they may have left this little lake when they became frogs. I also found a 2011 study that uh, looked at tadpole evolution. So as we discussed in the news, there are selective pressures on larval amphibians separate from what you get on adult amphibians. Yeah, when you're a swimming herbivore as a baby and then a hopping carnivore as an adult, it's natural selection doesn't treat you the same. <laughs> sure doesn't. <laughs> so Kim Rolance et al. did a molecular phylogeny, so genetic comparison, to ask, all right, what is the history of the morphological diversity of tadpoles? And what they found 
is that so modern tadpoles have all these different lifestyles and morphologies. They eat different things. They come in different shapes. Their study supports the the idea that this diversity radiated around the Triassic-Jurassic when we see molecular evidence of an early radiation of frogs, which suggests that the modern diversity of tadpole sort of strategies largely happened around the same time that frogs first achieved their their early diversity. So starting as a tadpole has been a feature of frogs effectively since there have been frogs. Yeah. Which make doesn't not make sense. Yeah. Well, their ancestors were metamorphic. Mm-hmm. Right? The, the Temnospondyls we're talking about being their potential ancestors metamorphosed. But that frogs and tadpoles have both been diverse since the beginning. And they also pointed that tadpoles kind of had little bursts of diversity after that, but nothing like the start. And that and that's the part that's, uh, to me, really interesting about it, is that you didn't have one group of their ancestral amphibians break off with one type of tadpole that then stayed that way quickly as soon as they diversified into frogs, diversified their tadpoles. Yeah. Which is, is interesting. It, to me, it could very likely suggest that being a frog has always been successful. Yeah, and so. being a tadpole has, mm-hmm. has been successful. And it's like that news bit, right? Tadpoles, as we know them, may be an important part of frog diversity. That yeah. metamorphosing lifestyle may be what has allowed frogs to be as diverse as they are. Cool. Very cool. So across the Cretaceous, we see a lot of modern groups of frogs. We see a lot of modern habits of frogs. And then... Around the end of the Cretaceous seems to be when we make the transition properly into modern frogs. And I say that because of a 2017 study by Yan Jiefeng et al. This was another genetic phylogeny. So they said, let's get all the frogs we can, their genetics at least, and put them in a big phylogenetic analysis and see if we can figure out what their history is. They looked at Uh, DNA from 156 living frog species, plus they had 20 different fossil calibrations. So this is something our friend Leah has talked with us about with ancient DNA, that you're using fossils to sort of constrain your estimates. Mm -hmm. They found that three major clades of frogs diversify, have their like big radiation, their own little explosion of diversity, right about at the end Cretaceous boundary. The hyloidea, which include your tree frogs, your horn frogs, your dart frogs, your true toads, those buffo toads, the microhylidae, the narrowmouth frogs, and a group called Natataneura, which includes painted frogs and the true frogs, the ranid frogs, mm-hmm. plus lots more. And what's notable about those three groups is that they comprise about 88% of living frog diversity. That's a bunch of percent. Which suggests that frogs as we know them, the diversity of frogs as we know them, get their start at the Cretaceous Paleogene boundary. <laughs> they were all just empowered by the asteroid. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> they got the energy. They were like Vandal Savage. Yes, exactly. They were powered up. Well, uh, they they note that at the same time we see that arboreal frog groups show up, originate there. That we see maybe not the origination of tree-dwelling frogs, period. I don't know. But at the very least, arboreal frogs as we know them today originate at that boundary. So they were saying that it could be that the extinction 
the end Cretaceous Extinction, episode five, not only was terrible, but may have opened up new ecological niches. And so some frogs were able to move into the trees. They were able to radiate afterwards and provide a Cenozoic cast of frogs, which persist till today. Good going frogs. Like that's, that, that is some early success after a mass extinction. Yep. <laughs> and from then on, there have been frogs. Like you name a frog. Yeah. There have been frogs throughout the Cenozoic. They are ubiquitous at a lot of fossil sites. The gray fossil site is loaded with frogs. Lots of frogs. We've identified, I want to say, four or five different types of frogs, and not that many people have studied them. Um, when I was a undergraduate student, the first fossil site that I ever worked on out in South Dakota, I helped sort fossils out of the sediment, and one of the first types of fossils I learned to identify were frogs, because you get tons of them. Frogs are found all over the place. Uh, 2020, this year, a paper came out from Thomas Moores et al. that identified the first known frog from Antarctica 40 million years ago in the Eocene, which I believe we also talked about in a recent bonus news. Yeah. So frogs have been ubiquitous. Actually, the frog fossil record as we have it is pretty much all over the world. And when you study fossils, Cretaceous and younger, you can... Usually bet you're going to get frogs. In fact, that Triassic study that Michelle Stocker et al. did, uh, she was on the Gray Fossil Site's Paleotox. So go on to YouTube and look up ETSU Natural History and Gray Fossil Site Paleotox. Michelle was on talking about this frog. And one of the sort of deliverables of that paper was, one of the, I guess the messages of the paper was, not a lot of people are doing microfossil collection at Triassic sites. We did and we found this frog ilium mm -hmm. if you do microfossils, we might be finding more frogs and in the cenozoic it's true there are frogs everywhere you want to make a living as a paleontologist if you like frogs go from site to site and offer to identify their frogs <laughs> well it's 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 easy to forget that screening for smaller vertebrate fossils like that is still a fairly new general practice Right. The Gray Fossil Site is still, to my knowledge, the only site that screens all of our sediment. Mm -hmm. Most places are not screening, certainly not screening all of it, and a lot of places don't even do very much at all. Yeah, it's typically... It's a lot of work. Well, yeah, it's a lot of work, and in the past it was much more of a targeted of, we found an interesting specimen here, let's screen this stuff right. around it to see if we can get any more little bits of this one. Uh, or it was a... Uh, a random selection of every, you know, fifth bag, every, you know, 12th shovelful. I don't know how they meant, but like yeah. to where you're doing a percentile. Uh, and often you are, you might be looking specifically for something. Mm -hmm. It's like, we want to find rodent teeth. And so looking for those small things, you can find some cool stuff. One of the reasons that frogs are so handy to study in the fossil record is that Frogs are one of the most famous examples of environmental indicators. Yes, they are. Frogs are amphibians, They, which means that they are, right, they breathe through their skin, they're tied to the water often, which means that when the water goes bad, the frogs go bad. Yeah. When the environment changes, the frogs change with it. And so in the fossil record, frogs can be very handy for understanding your ecosystem because they're so sensitive to changes in the environment. And in the modern day... Frogs are also studied as environmental indicators 
to to basically say, hey, how is the world doing? Mm-hmm. Spoilers: frogs aren't doing great. <laughs> no, it's getting it's getting dark. I don't remember if we mentioned it in episode fifty five when we talked about the modern the current biodiversity crisis. Frogs are in a real decline these days, and a lot of it is environmental change. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is pollution and habitat destruction. Yeah, water quality going down. Uh, and there's also a chytrid fungus. Yes, there is. Uh, Batrachochytridomycosis, I think. Well, that might be the disease. Mm-hmm. But Batrachochytrium, maybe the, the thing. Something like that. It is a chytrid fungus that has been going around the world infecting amphibians in general but especially hitting frogs really hard it, it due to their semi-permeable skin they can just get a fungal infection on basically any patch of exposed skin and if they get an infection on their skin they use that to breathe yes so it can be real bad uh it's 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 nasty stuff so understanding the history of frogs is handy for understanding frogs today, which is handy for understanding our world, the, the the way that our world is. They have a fascinating fossil history. I've left out most of it. So as I said, hey, hey, listeners, if you have a favorite frog, living or extinct, that I did not mention, or that Will did not mention, let us know. Say, like, let us know what your favorite frog is. Send us a picture or something. Absolutely. No, frogs are, are fascinating and cool, but they are just hugely diverse and have been around for a long time so there's there's so much more that we could cover that we just can't and if you want to hear more about frogs or other amphibians let us know as always hey before we wrap it up we have a patron question we do one of the things that our patrons can do at a certain level on our patreon is ask us questions for us to answer here on the podcast will what kind of question you got for us this question is from our patron the Dread Pirate Rob again. Okay. Who asks, following up our 007 episode where we mentioned electric eels. Oh yes, this was our silver screen science about the animals of the James Bond franchise. And in License to Kill, there were electric eels. Indeed. Dread Pirate Rob asks, What be known, O oh, the evolution of electricity, as a defensive weapon? Can fossils show any suggestions of electric power? Great question, Dread Pirate Rob. So, electric fish. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to defer to you here in a second, but as a general overview, electroreception, which is the ability to sense and receive electric fields, mm-hmm. is super common in fish. Yes. Lots of fish have that. This is uh, Usually what they're doing is what's called passive electroreception, which is you can, like, like our hearing is passive. Yes. A noise happens and we hear it. Our ears aren't doing anything. They're right. just picking up the vibrations in the air. There are a handful of fish groups that can do active electroreception, mm-hmm. which is also I've seen called electrolocation. Yeah. Which is you generate electricity and sense distortions in the field. It, so while sharks have little pits that just can detect, oh, electricity changed. Yep. These, I think the elephant fish is one of yeah, these. Yeah, there are two groups that do it. Uh, the Mormiridae are elephant fish mm-hmm. of Africa. And then gymnotiforms include knife fish and electric eels are in that group, which are Central and South American. They're actually putting out an electric field and effectively scanning. Yes. Like a ping. Yeah. The (laughs) way the electric field reacts to things then can let them know what's nearby. It's echolocation with electricity. Which is so cool. Very cool. And then there are a handful of fish that are known to use electricity 
offensively or mm-hmm. defensively, basically to hurt something. Yes. Electric eels do it. Uh, there are electric catfish. Yeah. There are electric rays. There are stargazers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Will, you're the fish guy, kind of. <laughs> if, you, if you have any fun things to share about how that works, go for it. So the basic way, and as far as I'm aware, in most of these groups, it's all generally the same structures. I assume, though, just oriented and maybe with slightly different origins. Because a stingray versus a freshwater fish are, like, like the knife fish and everything, are two very different groups. Yes. And indeed, electro... Active electroreception, so the ability to generate electric fields, Mm -hmm. from what I've read, I did a little bit of reading on this, does have multiple origins. Yeah. This is a, it, when you're in a highly transmittable medium like water, electricity is much more effective than it would be in air. Yes. Oh, and I should also mention that a lot of electrolocating fish are not only able to create a field to sense their environment, but also for communication. Yeah, yeah. It's called electrocommunication because <laughs> if you can create it and receive it then you can communicate with it it's you're talking via high speed <laughs> yes <laughs> dial up internet <laughs> but basically the way it works is in the electric eel and i believe in the others as well they have these special blocks of muscle mm-hmm. that when you contract your muscles it creates an electric field that's yes. what sharks and rays sense when they're looking for their prey. Yeah, we're all electric. We're, you're using your nerves and the contraction of the muscle creates electric field. You don't have to be actively contracting to always create it, but contractions definitely create an electric field. These muscles act as little batteries and contract and store that electrical charge, that electrical potential, until the animal decides to unleash it. And they have like long rows of these cells, if mm-hmm. I remember right, that build upon each other. Yes. It's it's like having, you know, battery banks and capacitors that you can build a charge up in like a Tesla coil and stuff. Now, most fish that generate electricity don't do that. They're, it's such a weak field that we wouldn't feel it at all. But electric eels, electric rays, electric catfish do produce like, uh, no, I'm going to stun my prey and punish my my enemies yes yes for bothering me i did find a 2012 study that did a phylogenetic analysis on gymnotiforms and mormyrids so knife fish and elephant fish and found that one their last common ancestor was not electro generative so they each independently evolved that mm-hmm. and they estimated that electroreception in these groups evolved many million years before electrogeneration. Which would make sense. That they were electroreceptive and then later electrogenerative. And then, since the electric eel, I believe, is the only one of those two groups that shocks things. Yeah, as far as I'm aware. That logically would then be the next step is you can generate electricity and a handful of times fish have built that up. Right. Better and better sensing, better and better communication until evolution catches on to the selective pressure of, oh, hey, when we do that, the sharks go away. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> Let's keep doing that. As for the evolution of it, that's about what I think we know is what are maybe the steps and maybe the pressures. Because unless we were able to get like a Burgess Shale fossil of, of a electric eel ancestor that preserved the soft tissue, yep. it's all musculature. There are fossils 
of gymnotiforms. There are fossils of electric catfish and, and uh, like, the, the groups that include electric fish. I, I don't know if there are electric catfish fossils, but the gymnotiforms, the more mere, the elephant fish, we have fossils of them, but they're identified based on skeletal things. The one example I found that mentioned electric organs was a study uh, on Eocene electric rays, which are the torpedo rays. Yes. And in fact, there is apparently, I saw in this paper, a genus of Eocene ray called Eotorpedo. Oh. It's no Beelzebufo, but it's a good name. And they noted that one of the identifying features of these rays is that their skeletons had these big spaces in between the middle part of the body and the pectoral skeleton, Mm -hmm. where the electric organ goes. Yes. So we have fossils of these animals. We, and some of them even have the gaps where the electric organ fits. They've got the space for them. But to my knowledge, we do not have any fossilized electrical organs. Well, and as the study and you were mentioning that ancestrally, producing electricity does not necessarily mean you produce a shock. Right. And I don't know how you would tell the difference. I'm sure you could. I'm sure someone who knows fish yes. would be able... No, no. An electric eel is different from a knife mm-hmm. fish because of this. So, excellent question, matey. Uh, I got to learn some stuff about electric fish, and hopefully our listeners did too. That's it for episode 91. This has been a fun jaunt through the fossil record of frogs. As always, there will be... A blog post with links and pictures and more information for you to go check out. As always, let us know what else you want to hear. Give us requests. Send your questions and comments our way. We have a Patreon. You get all sorts of goodies on Patreon if you want to join us. Episode 100's coming up. If you want us to do something special for episode 100, we're taking ideas now. Will, am I forgetting anything? Keep an eye out for news on what we'll be doing for virtual Dragon Con and virtual... SVP. That's true. And and we release episodes every fortnight. Take care and stay safe. Bye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.